Welcome to New Cities Sermon Podcast. Join us as we root deep in God's Word, expecting to be encouraged, challenged, and formed to be more like Jesus together. Let's get into the scriptures now. We are continuing our series called Faith for Exiles, Resistance and Resilience. And we're looking at the Old Testament specifically the event where Israel was captured by Babylon and taken hundreds and hundreds of miles away and held in captivity in the kingdom of Babylon. And many of the stories of the Bible take place in that time period. But the New Testament picks up that idea of being in exile and uses it as a metaphor for what it's like to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Just as the Old Testament believers were not at home, so we are not at home in this world. Just as they had to learn how to live out their faith in an away stadium. Remember how we talked about sports? There's a difference between playing at home and playing away. So we have to learn how to live out our faith when we're in a place where people don't share our values. And so we're continuing that series tonight as we looked at Daniel 1 last week, and we'll look at Daniel 3 tonight. But before we open the scriptures, let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would change us and encourage us, that we might be transformed in how we think and what we love and how we act, that you might help us live as exiles in this world, knowing that we will be home when we are with you face to face in the new heavens and the new earth. But until then, the earth is not our home. Give us the strength that we need to live as followers of Jesus when it's becoming harder to be a follower of Jesus. We pray for your word tonight that it would do its work on my heart and everyone's heart here and all the people said, amen. Let's jump into Daniel chapter three. We're gonna read 15 verses right at the beginning and then we're gonna save the end of the story till the end. Daniel three Starting in verse 1 says, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps and the prefects and the governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. A herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, You are commanded when you hear the sound of the horn and the flute and the zither and the lyre and the harp and the drum and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue the King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn and the flute and the zither and the lyre and the harp and every kind of music, People of every nation and language fell down and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
Some Chaldeans, that's Babylonians, took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. By Jews, he means Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn and the flute and the zither and the lyre and the harp and the drum and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn and the flute and the zither and the lyre and the harp and the drum and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? The word of the God. George Michael famously saying, I gotta have faith. Who is old enough to remember that song? About half of you, maybe less. Faith has always been something we've talked about as a culture. Right now, people are talking about faith, but they're using the word manifest. I wanna try and manifest something. I wanna think positively about something. Christians also have talked about faith or manifesting, and they've used the words declare. I want to decree and declare something. I want to see something that doesn't exist come into existence. But we've often been very confused about how this whole faith thing works. Because so many times when we talk about faith, when we got to have faith, we're really just talking about trying to control our circumstances rather than going through the circumstances that God has given us. Brian Chappell uh, who's a pastor, told a story about a man at a congregation he once pastored. He pastored in this small town where there was kind of gritty people, like farmers and miners. And there was one particular coal miner who in the mines had received an injury that left him decrepit for the rest of his life. His injury permanently damaged his body, so he had to stay in his room and watch life out his window, watch life pass him by. As his own body continued to deteriorate, and because he couldn't fix his house, his house deteriorated. And he watched out his window as the other men who worked at the coal mine raised families and earned money and had children and grandchildren. He watched. Then a young man came over to the coal miner's house. He had grown a little bit older by this time. And the young man came to the injured coal miner and says, I, I hear that you have faith in God. How can God love you when you're in this bed watching life pass you by out the window? 
don't you ever doubt? Don't you ever struggle with faith? See, when we ask that question, like, in the midst of a tough circumstances, when we tell the story about the coal miner, the idea of faith has a little bit more teeth on it than just, I gotta believe. That's what this series is really about, is exploring not just thinking about getting out of circumstances, but what happens when you're in circumstances you don't wanna be in. This is faith for exiles. They didn't wanna be in captivity. They didn't wanna be far from home. But faith for them meant a deep trust in God when they had no control over their circumstances. In fact, in Daniel chapter three, we get another lesson on faith for exiles, what it actually looks like. Faith for exiles resists, it resolves, and it relies. It doesn't just believe, it resists, it resolves and relies. What I mean by that is it asks us questions. Do you resist other people's normal when it compromises God's commands? That's faith for exiles. Do you have a resolve to obey God even when it is costly? That's faith for exiles. Can you rely on God's rescue when the temperature gets hot? First of all, let's talk about faith for exiles that resists. I don't know if you caught it as I read through the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, but the phrase, the, the idol that Nebuchadnezzar set up, set up, appeared like seven different times. And this story isn't taken just by itself. It comes after chapter two. And if you've ever read Daniel chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about a statue. In fact, we have a picture of what that statue might have looked like in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter two. And Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about a statue that's made of gold and silver and bronze and iron and clay. And he doesn't know what it means, but Daniel's able to interpret the dream for him. And the different materials on this statue represent different kingdoms that will come to reign. It represents a thousand years of human history. And Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar that the gold, the gold there at the top, the head, represents Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom of Babylon, but eventually King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom will fall and a new kingdom will come, represented by the silver, which is the Medo-Persian kingdom. But after that, that kingdom will fall and a bronze kingdom will come, or the Greeks and Alexander the Great, but that won't last forever, and there will be a kingdom that's represented by the iron and the clay, which will be the Roman Empire. But even that kingdom will eventually fall. But there's a kingdom that's coming that will not fall. At the end of the interpretation, Daniel says this, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. You saw a stone break off the mountain, King Nebuchadnezzar, without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain and its interpretation reliable. King Nebuchadnezzar, this dream means that your kingdom has an end date. And in fact, all kingdoms have an end date, but there's a kingdom coming and a king coming who will reign forever. 
Daniel chapter two. Daniel chapter three, King Nebuchadnezzar makes a statue. Let's compare the king, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar made with the one in the dream. We have the next slide. The one that King Nebuchadnezzar sets up is all gold from head to toe. King Nebuchadnezzar is trying to duel with destiny, is trying to signal that my kingdom will not fall. My kingdom is represented by the gold at the top in Daniel chapter 2, but King Nebuchadnezzar is rejecting his own limits. He's rejecting the fact that God has said his kingdom will have an end. His love and power of control makes him set up this statue representing that his kingdom will have no end, and he forces everyone to worship it because of his love of power and his love of control. Your ultimate allegiance has to be to this statue that represents the endless reign of Babylon. And if you do not bow down, if you do not submit, you will die in the fiery furnace. It's so interesting how this statue, when we really understand it, against the backdrop of Daniel chapter two, we see that King Nebuchadnezzar isn't just making a pretty statue. Rather, he is rejecting God's kingdom. He is rejecting God's commands and he's doing it at any cost. He's willing to kill any image bearer of God who does not follow his plan and worship the gold statue. We get a little picture into how idolatry works. Now, in many cultures, they have real representations like this of idols that are bowed down to, but many of us have idols that we create and we construct in our own hearts. And every time that we have an idol, it includes us ignoring God's narrative on things. It includes us turning off the notifications about God's commands, no matter what happens. King Nebuchadnezzar is ignoring what God said will certainly happen, that his kingdom will come to an end. He is ignoring God's command to not have any gods before him. And he is willing to sacrifice whoever gets in his way. That is how idolatry works. Now, I think there's several things in just his idolatry that are helpful for us. One, this is political idolatry. We talk a lot and warn about political idolatry in our own culture. This is it. This is political idolatry, the love of power. Now, here's the interesting thing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the circle of power. God has placed them there to rule and to reign in the kingdom of Babylon because they're smart and they're good looking and they're fine young men. They're in the circle of power yet they resist the political idolatry of King Nebuchadnezzar and will not bow to this idol. It makes us question, where are we tempted to bow? Do we bow as if our party's political platform is ultimate? It's very easy to see where the other guys are wrong it's more difficult to see where you have to stand about against what's happening in your own party. 
when you're not willing to stand against the wrong that's happening within your house, that's idolatry. That's idolatry. Friends, even even as we look at what's happening in the Middle East, um, we have to be careful that we do not serve narratives that God does not approve of. What has happened with the terrorism among Hamas killing innocent people is inexcusable. It is wicked. It is evil. Innocent loss of life violates God's commands. Yet at the same time, we must be careful that we view the same standard when it comes to innocent Palestinians who are trapped. People who are Christian even and do not support Hamas. We have to be careful that we pick the side of Jesus who is for human life rather than getting co-opted by a political narrative. We as Christians have to be willing to call all evil evil and all good good. And that's why we pray, not for a winner, but we pray for peace and less loss of life. We have to be so careful with political idolatry and we also have to resist idolatry in our own hearts. Now, this is pretty obvious. This is a 90-foot-tall statue. I mean, look at it. (laughs) It's kind of awkward. If you walked into my living room and that was nine feet tall, you'd you'd think it was strange. But Nebuchadnezzar here, we, we see something about his own heart and his own allegiances, that he's built this statue as a way of saying God's narrative doesn't matter My kingdom, my power, that's what I want. And now we don't have 90-foot statues, but if we're willing to look at deeper things in our life, we might see that we have deeper allegiances to ourselves than rather to God. Instead of looking at a 90-foot statue, what if we looked at our calendars? Where is all our time on our calendars going? Is it going to our comforts, to our pleasures, or is it going to serve God and serve others? What about our bank statements? Where is our finances going? Is it going just for us or is it going to serve other people? We could ask that with our screen time and with the miles that we put on our car. If we were willing to look at that and say, could these things show any of my own personal idols? We might feel a conviction from the Holy Spirit and we might see that we're ignoring God's commands in certain places as well. Just like we just heard a notification, right? And we always are turning off notifications. Anywhere that we turn off the notification about God's command, it's probable that there's an idol behind that desire to turn off that command. Faith for exiles is a faith that resists idolatry. It resists political idolatry. It resists personal idolatry. It realizes that God's narrative is what matters. God's commands what matters. And following God's commands at any cost is really important. The second thing about faith is that it resolves to obey. After King Nebuchadnezzar has a hissy fit that they will not worship 
Listen to what Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego reply to him. They say, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of the blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. Throw us into the fire. We think God will protect us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to worship. That's courage. That's courage to obey. That's a resolve to obey no matter what happens. Notice that they don't beg. They don't try and rationalize like, hey, if we just do it this once, if we just bow the knee, no one will really see and God will forgive us anyway. No, they don't do that. They resolve to obey. They have courage to obey at any cost. They're resolute in whatever risk comes. They're decisive about their obedience, even if it brings death. Now, many of us will not have this type of moment this like one big moment of obedience. Some of you may, but most likely right now, it's not the big things. It's not the big moments of obedience, the courage that take courage for us to obey God. Rather, it's the everyday little faithful things that you're faced with right now. It's the tiny little things, but don't overlook those little places of obedience. Those little places of obedience that you follow God, and now that you resolve to obey, that creates momentum of obedience in your life. Maya Angelou said, you develop courage by doing courageous things, small things, but those small things that cost you some exertion, mental exertion, and I suppose spiritual exertion. See, you might be called to obey in a moment of life-costing persecution. That might happen. But I know you will be called to obedience in the smaller moments where you make decisions about your finances or where you decide whether you're going to stay in a marriage or not or, or, or what you do with your health. In the midst of all those things, those tiny places in your life, can you find the courage and resolve to obey even when it brings loss? Obedience often feels like we're losing something as we obey. That's why it takes courage. But let me ask you this. Are we really losing something when we obey Christ? Yeah, we do lose some things. But do those things compare? Do those losses compare with the glory of gaining Jesus? Isn't Jesus worth it? Isn't Jesus worth our obedience? I mean, this is what Paul gets at in Philippians 3, but he says, but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. The things I lose, (laughs) yeah, I lose them. But that loss, when you put it in the accounting chart, doesn't match up to what I gain in knowing Jesus Christ and his resurrection. 
If you're not yet a Christian, you have to understand that Christianity and the faith that we have is not about all our lives working out the way we want it to. In fact, when you become a Christian, your faith changes because your life becomes less important to you. You care less if things work out the way you want because you have a new joy just in knowing Jesus Christ. Samuel Rodegast was a German hymn writer in the 17th and 18th century. And he had a friend named Gastorius, and Gastorius became deadly ill. And in that context, Samuel Rodegast wrote a hymn for his friend who was sick. And it says this, whatever my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guideth. He is my God, through dark, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to him I leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right, though now this cup and drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. Whatever my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him, I leave it all. What's interesting, the legend around this hymn kind of goes is that Rodegast wrote this hymn, brought it to his sick friend named Gastorius, and the legend is that Gastorius wrote the music to go along with the lyrics. And in writing the music to go along with the lyrics, he's owning the lyrics as his own, that I will obey even though I'm dying. Whatever my God ordains is right, I will follow. So the question to you is, can you make the hymn your own, just like Gastorius made it him his own? Whatever you're walking through right now, can you resolve to obey even though you feel like it's not right? Can you say, whatever my God ordains for me is right, I will obey. Whether that be relationships aren't going the way you want or money not working out, the struggles that you're facing. That is what we're called to do as people in exile, a resolve to obey. And in that obedience, we can have a deep reliance on God's rescue. I don't know if you caught it. You, you, you caught it when we first read it through that they said, we will not submit. We will not disobey our God. But did you catch the reliance on God's rescue, that they thrust themselves on nothing else but God's salvation for them in the fiery furnace. In verse 17 and 18, I'll read it again. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. There's not strong enough language in that. It really should almost say, he will rescue us. In other words, we know he has the ability to do it, and we are convinced he will. But even if he does not, if we're wrong, even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. In this possible rescue, they rely on God in confident submission. 
there's an assurance that they have in their words that God is in power, not Nebuchadnezzar, and our God is good, and our God is faithful. But there's also a confidence that they have. We believe our God will save us. It's not a control of God. It's rather a confidence that he, he can and he will. But even in that, there's a submission. If he doesn't, we're okay. Thy will be done. We don't demand that God does this. We defer to him. If we die in the fiery furnace, here's what we say. God knows best. We will not disobey. There's something beautiful and rich and challenging about faith. Faith for exiles. Rodney Stortz puts it this way. Biblical faith has the assurance to say, I know my God is able to deliver me. It has the confidence to say, I believe my God will deliver me. But it also has the submission to say, but even if he does not, I will still trust him. I rely on God to rescue me. And whether he rescues me now or rescues me later, or whether he rescues me in a way that I cannot see, I will trust him. And see, that's just the thing. God often doesn't rescue us out of the fires. He rescues us in the midst of the fires. He doesn't rescue you so you don't have to obey. Rather, he rescues you in the midst of obeying. It's not that our obedience earns his rescuing, but God doesn't call us to situations and then say, actually, it's okay if you disobey. Rather, he calls us to obey in the midst of the fires. And that's just what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do. The story ends this way in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage. And the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary. And he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men, the soldiers, in their trousers, robes, head covering, and other clothes, sorry, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Someone else is in the fire with them that looks divine. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of the blazing fire and called, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. When the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their head was singed. 
Their robes were unaffected. There was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command. They violated my command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were rescued, but it was not out of the circumstances. It was through the circumstances. They weren't rescued out of going into the fire. They were rescued in the midst of the fire. They were rescued by a God who gives his presence in the midst of the fire. We're not really sure whether this is an angel from God or this is a manifestation of Jesus, but we know God sent somebody to protect them in the fire because that's what our God does when when we go into the fire. Isaiah 42 says, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and the rivers will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, and the blame will not burn you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, and your Savior. Never promises that we won't go through the fires. He promises that he will be with us in the midst of, of the fires. God can and does rescue. But sometimes he rescues us in ways that we don't expect, in the ways that we wouldn't plan, but we can always count on this. He promises his presence with us no matter what we go through, no matter what the rescue looks like. The truth is, whatever problem you're in right now, when that goes away, you will have another problem to walk through. The fire you're rescued out of this week, a week from now, there'll be another fire that you're in. And you'll have fire after fire after fire. And I hate to depress you, but then one day you'll die. But that just points to the ultimate rescue that Jesus defeated sin and death to rescue us from eternal separation from God. The ultimate rescue that, that Jesus died the death we deserve to die to rescue us from the punishment for sin. And he came back to life by the power of God so that death is no longer an eternal fire for you and I. Rather, it is a passing through that God is now with us and we will be raised for eternity and live with the Son forever. As the worship team comes back up, I want to circle back to the story of that old miner, the old injured miner who was stuck in bed, stuck watching the world go by out his window He had the young man come in and say, how in the world can you say that God loves you? Don't you doubt at times? And the old miner and his wisdom and his commitment and his faithfulness to God said, yeah, I wanna tell you something. Sometimes Satan comes and sits on my bed right where you're sitting. 
And Satan points at all those men who have families and says to me, how can your God love you? And Satan points at all the wealth that's out there that I'm not having and says, how can your God love you? And Satan points to all the men who had the job that I had and didn't get injured and says, how can your God love you? And then the coal miner smiled and looked at the young man sitting on his bed and he said, well, in my mind, I take Satan by the hand and I lead him to a a far away hill called Calvary. And just as Satan has pointed out my window, I point up to my Lord and Savior hanging on a cross for me and said, doesn't he love me? I point to the hands with the nail scars in them. I, I point to the blood that's coming out of his side and I say, oh, he does love me. See, friends, so often we can get so caught up in the rescue that we need in the immediate that we forget that, that, that Jesus went through something for us to rescue us eternally. That God's love for us is shown in the greatest way, not that he saves us from the problems in our life or even from the persecution that we face, but rather that Jesus went through the fire of God's wrath for you and for me. He died for our sins on the cross. And to hold on to that is at the very center of what it means to have faith as an exile, to resist any other God but the one true God who sent Jesus, to resolve to obey Jesus, not because we loved him first, but because he first loved us, and to rely on him. But our God does love us. He will make a way. He is the way maker. But know this, trusting him is the way. It's not just that God gives you a problem, a way around all your problems. It's that holding on to him in the midst of the fire is the way forward. Let's pray. Thank you for joining with us as we rooted deep in God's word. If you found this sermon encouraging, share it with a friend. You can learn more about New City by going to newcityhh.com or checking us out on social media by searching New City HH. We'll see you next week.